My guest today, Sean Korn, has been a force in the world of yoga for many, many years. I, back in the day, in the uh, early 2000s, owned a yoga studio in New York City and taught for seven years myself and was always just absolutely blown away by uh, Sean's presence, her thoughtfulness, her compassion, her originality, and sense of service along the way. She has since built a giant global following, traveled around the world, taught and impacted the lives of so many different people. And it's kind of amazing because if you zoom the lens even further back in time, growing up in New Jersey, Sean was a kid who really struggled with any sort of teaching or education type of format. She did not do well in a traditional school where movement was not a part of the sort of educational process. And then she also struggled with a pretty substantial experience of OCD, of anxiety and thought spinning. And it's really fascinating to actually know how yoga and breathing played a role in helping her unwind all of this in her life and led to a certain extent to the career and living and the lifestyle that she now has. These are things that we explore in depth in today's conversation. Really excited to share Sean Karn, her lens on life, her experience with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. Hosted by Juliana Urtube, a special education expert, this season is all about individualized education plans, or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice. It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important. So I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. What kind of kid were you? Um, what kind of kid was I? I was a, I was a decent kid, uh, curious, um, athletic, uh, think high energy, hmm. um, sensitive. Uh, but I grew up in a, a my parents were super young, um, progressive in a lot of ways, and we were allowed 
we were given a lot of freedom to explore, to express ourselves. So I, I had a nice little childhood. Yeah. yeah. Sensitive how? Um, I was highly intuitive. Huh. And so uh, I had a real issue around injustice. If I saw people getting bullied, if I saw animals getting uh, mistreated, things like that could send me into a tizzy. Um, very often I was, very often I would see things that didn't match what I was being told. Something wouldn't be right. And I didn't have the language to express it. But intuitively I knew that whatever they were telling me was, you know, was just nonsense. So I was sensitive that way. My mom said, it's like, she said, she, I came out of her with my eyes wide open mm. and I've stayed like that since. So very alert, very present, curious. My mom said I was like a little adult, couldn't stand other little kids. I was much more interested in being around adults, interested in adult conversations, never played like marriage or, you know, children. Like, you know, the first real game I remember playing included an old discarded checkbook it was like business, like I signed a check. <laughs> so I was sensitive, according to my mom, I was sensitive in that way that uh, I was just hyper aware of everything around me. Yeah. I mean, as a young kid, though, how does that fly with your peers and your ability to sort of get along and belong and find a group of people? No problem. I mean, I was, uh, I'm a highly social person yeah. and I ask a lot of questions, you know, as as I'm sure you do. It's, it's, it's a gift. Um, and so I made friends very easily. And I wasn't like that with my friends. You know, I would, I would, I wasn't sensitive like that amongst my peers. Mm. I was sensitive like that at home in environments where I was safer. But amongst my friends, uh, I could care less about anything except just connecting until I got older than it was partying and whatever it is that yeah. you do. Um, I did not have any kind of a childhood that was in any way extraordinary. It was, uh, you know, went to school. I was the only girl on an all-male track team. I was very athletic mm. and I was into theater, which I still am. I was not a good student. Uh, that I, had a, I didn't learn the way uh, the other students learned. And I had a hard time. Uh, I just had a hard time grasping information that was linear. Uh, and it took me a while to kind of catch on. It's why I didn't go to college. why I moved to New York City right outside of high school. Because yeah. I couldn't have gotten into college if I wanted to. I mean, it's so, it's so interesting now, though, because somebody looks at you now and obviously, you know, this is decades later and there's a wealth of knowledge that's been accumulated by you. But if you, if you reflect on your path and your career, it's, it's so physically embodied in a lot of layers. I mean, there's, there's a lot of spiritual embodiment also and deep knowledge. But I often wonder when I, when I talk to folks who say, who share that they really struggled in a sort of traditional linear mm -hmm. educational format, but they go into a field where there's a lot of movement, there's a lot of flow, mm -hmm. there's a lot of sort of like, there's a, there's a level of embodiment in the learning process and the sharing process, whether that almost has to be part of how you learn. I, I think so. I, I don't know. It wasn't until I was, um, I was around 16 years old, 15, 16, I had a teacher, young teacher, who recognized that I was, I was very bright, but that I just did not do well in school the way uh, my peers did or the way my older brother did, who was, who was brilliant at school. He, uh, I remember he gave me a different assignment than the rest of the students in the class. Mm. He gave me books to read. And there were books at that time, you know, back in you know, the early 80s that would not have been, they would have been way too progressive for my kind of conservative environment. It was a color purple. So you're dealing with injustice. You're dealing with incest and racism, um, sexual abuse, things that 
at that time, a school would not have assigned to yeah. a 15 year old. So he let me read these books. And then he, all he wanted from me was uh, to give reports on these books using whatever language I wanted to. I can express myself without censoring. He just wanted to know how I feel, felt, not what I thought. Hmm. He opened up a world for me because it, it, I got it right away. This kind of literature, my mind understood it. My body felt it. It exposed a world in which I wanted to know more about. And when I was allowed to express, it was almost like I started to understand symbolism and philosophy um, in such in that intuitive way I always had. But he gave me the freedom to express it. And I spent much of my last couple of years in school doing that, reading books Hmm. and expressing myself. And he was, a, I, I know him to this day, and I've often said, like, how did he know that I had this, in some ways, almost like a, a gift for the human experience, a sensitivity for it, an empathy. And he drew that out of me. And it was the first time I realized that I was, I was actually smart. I just, I just understood information more through my right, the right side of my brain. It was more circular than linear. And it opened up a lifelong passion for reading since. And that then moved into philosophy and spirituality. And just I would grab any book I could that would give me more insight about life, whether it was the light side of life or the shadow. I wanted to understand more. And the embodied piece integrates it. Uh, It's like... uh, for someone with my temperament, because I struggled as a kid with anxiety, it's like the anxiety, the superstitions I had, things of that nature would cause my body to contract. When my body would contract, it would block my ability just to let images and ideas flow. Once I started to move my body, it opened up those channels so that I didn't restrict that more creative energy. So I do think that there's a correlation uh, for me, I can't speak for anyone else. The embodied work and me being able to assimilate ideas hmm. uh, in a more integrative way. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And and like you, I don't know if everyone's like that way, but for sure, I, I'm I'm the exact same way. Um, yeah. As you're talking, I had this super flashback. When in a very past life, I was a lawyer, and when I studied for the bar, I just moved out to you know, like we had a little summer place on an island where I was alone. And I remember holding an outline in my hands and I would just walk outside for two hours in the afternoon, sort of studying and walking, studying and walking, Mm -hmm. studying. And it was the movement. And I realized if I just sat down, I was worth half of what I was worth in terms of my ability to learn. And I I don't know why, but Mm -hmm. I do, I agree with you. I think some people, there's something about the movement that lets it all come together inside of you and just makes it gel. Yeah. I, for, again, for, I can't, I don't, I've never really thought about that in terms of anyone else. I know for myself, everything I do is embodied. Mm. I don't have the ability to separate the way in which I experience the world, whether it's through learning um, or through relationship in any capacity that doesn't also uh, require me to move, to breathe, to ground, to discharge energy. I just relate better to everything that I do when I discharge, when I release um, it allows me to be more present. Yeah. You mentioned that you had anxiety as a kid. How did that yeah. show up in your life? Um, I had obsessive compulsive disorder when I was a child. Uh, it wasn't diagnosed though until I was 19. 
there was no um, word for it yeah. as a kid. I was just, I had these quirky behaviors. Um, I was compulsive about the number four and the number eight. And it started when I was around seven years old. Um, again, I wouldn't have assigned anxiety to what I was experiencing. I know now that I was sensitive. I had anxiety and I attached it to superstitions. Hmm. I wasn't raised in a religious household. My family was very agnostic. Yet the environment I grew up in was very Christian, Catholic. So there was all sorts of God talk that was dogmatic and punishing. And even though I wasn't raised to believe in a punishing God, I was raised to believe really in no God. But the information I was getting was that if you messed up, you were unlovable, you were unworthy. And it stayed with me. And I started to get superstitious that if I did that, people that I loved would be punished or killed if I didn't do things in certain order. And so if I would get anxious, I would touch, blink, swallow. It usually was touching and I called it patterning. Um, so things had to happen in fours and eights. If someone walked into me, I had to figure out how to walk into them on the opposite side to create balance and synergy in my body. And if I didn't do it, A, I wouldn't feel balanced, but B, I was afraid I would jinx myself and someone would die and I'd be responsible. The uh, touching, it, in lieu of alcohol or drugs, which I wouldn't discover until later on, this was a very clever way for my nervous system to figure out how to self-regulate. So I didn't, I wouldn't have understood self-regulation as a kid. I wouldn't have had access to the drugs and alcohol. Um, so by touching things in even numbers, by patterning, I would calm my nervous system and it mm. would allow me to function in a healthier way and it would allow me to take control over my body. So uh, I look back at it now, even though it was, it was an emotional response to trauma. It wasn't a mental response. Uh, illness or imbalance, the way that obsessive compulsive disorder often is assigned. For me, it was a response to my environment feeling out of control and me finding a very clever way to create control when I didn't know how. Again, I didn't have the words at seven. So it wasn't until I came to New York City at 17 where the OCD became more complex hmm. uh, because I was away from my home and away from my mom, who I was very close to. Like I was alone. I was out there for the first time. Plus, at this point, I'm doing drugs a lot. And the drugs that I liked were stimulants like Coke. And so that's not great for anxiety. Someone should have told me that then. You know? But my compulsions got worse. And I couldn't really leave my house without, you know, I, I'd have to check the doorknobs multiple times, four times at least. Um, I just realized that there was something going on. Simultaneously, I was getting into yoga. I was starting to notice that the human body is not the exact same on both sides. And it would cause me some anxiety while I was on the mat, when I would realize one shoulder was lower than the other, one hip was higher than the other, and I couldn't do anything about it. It was structural. For me, a real change happened when... I'm in a yoga class, teacher uh, accidentally steps on my foot, the sensation in my body, like I could feel it through my body. I could feel the anxiety come up because he's now touched my right foot. How am I going to get him to touch my left foot? And I'm, if you looked at me from the outside, you know, I'm a dissociator. So you don't see that there's anything going on. I look perfectly calm, grounded and at peace, but internally I'm plotting how I can trip and Find a way 
to kick his other foot before I leave without making it too weird. It was always weird. And the teacher then randomly says, breathe and everything changes. And I remember hearing it and I take a deep breath and nothing changed. I do it again. And the anxiety actually got worse. Like I could feel it like building. I don't know if it was my third breath or my 12th breath, but there was a breath where the sensation in my body changed, the tension shifted, and I was able to leave the studio without having to trip on and kick the left foot. That was a a turning point in my life, was understanding that I can actually change the sensation in my body through the breath. The problem was I wasn't understanding the core Hmm. of the trauma, so it was just, it was a beautiful Band-Aid. And it's a band-aid that I recommend, but without getting to the core of the trauma, it's just temporary. It'll just filter into something else. And uh, But at that time, at 19 years old, learning that particular skill helped me to notice when the sensation, when the I was able to assign a sensation to anxiety. It felt a certain way. So once I could just say like, oh, my heart's beating, my chest feels hot, there's a tingling under my skin. My back feels tight. There's something electric. These are the sensations I might feel. I would breathe until those sensations became something else, and they always did. And when they did, I was able to not have to act out on those compulsions and eventually was able to, um, you know, I, I wouldn't say, you know, it's it's not something you heal from Uh I, I don't have those compulsions today, but I'd be a, I'd be a liar to say that in moments of stress, I haven't noticed myself hit an elbow and then hit another elbow and be like, oh, look at that. Hmm. There that is. But it's not something I'd be conscious of, and it's not something that I would indulge. Uh, but I am aware, like, oh, it kind of stays with you. And- right. So it becomes more of an observation and then there's almost a sense of agency that's built into it now that yeah. wasn't there before. It's yeah. like, oh, so this doesn't have to be my automatic response. No. I can choose to somehow diminish or like release the sensation a different mm-hmm. way. But it also reminds, it lets me know like, oh, you're stressed. Yeah. You know, you're That's tense so or you're insecure. Right. It's a signal. Yeah. And yeah. it's like, just take a moment with that before you like, you move on. Just know that your body is letting you know that you are not completely in your center right now. So I'm not ungrateful when it shows up. I just know it's my body letting me know to pay attention. Yeah. You mentioned that, um, that this is all great and having the strategies and the techniques to unwind this is like, do it mm-hmm. if, if you can do it. Yeah. Um, but if there is some deeper trauma, you know, that's the place where all yeah. the, the really, the big work, the big release happens. Mm-hmm. What was the deeper thing for you? Was it the reflection back to sort of the, the spiritual conflict that you grew up or was there something else that you keyed in on? Um, well, this wouldn't, I, it's very interesting because trauma is, uh, Trauma is defined as anything that overwhelms your capacity to cope and leaves you feeling helpless, hopeless, out of control, or unable to respond. Okay. I wouldn't have looked at my trauma through that lens. I was cognizant of my trauma. I was molested at six years old by an adult, distant relative. This was not something that was secretive. It wasn't something that wasn't dealt with. It was something that was very much uh, communicated. So... It wasn't something that I carried within me as a trauma. Right, on a conscious level. No, not even close. Right. Except that I was six when I was molested 
and obsessive compulsive disorder started at seven. No one ever connected the two that my body was searching for control, Mm. that my nervous system was outraged. I never got to scream, to yell, to, I was fine, you know, because I'm a dissociator. I wasn't fine. I was completely outside of my experience, but none of the adults in my life could have understood that at that time. They gauged my reaction and my reaction was very adult. It's because I wasn't in my body. So the OCD helped me get back in my body. It let me have control. Again, never made that connection. Mm. It wasn't until uh, when I was, uh, when I got into yoga and had those experiences, breathe and everything changes, simultaneously decided to get into therapy to see if that, if I could understand why I was doing these impulses. And it was that therapist who, he was the one who introduced me to OCD, but he also said, I think that you do this as a result of your trauma. And I remember looking at him and saying, what trauma? And he like was dumbfounded. He said, your molestation. And I had shared that with him once, like as a throwaway. Like in passing, like this is one of the things in my history. (laughs) Totally. Because it was really no, it was not something that I carried. Hmm. And, or so I thought. And it was, he who helped me to understand trauma, dissociation, the mind-body connection, the way in which this information had been living in my cells, the, my, um, the suppression of the rage, the shame, the guilt, and how my nervous system was continually trying to work that out, how my environments were in the unconscious never safe, and that uh, my anxiety was trying to create this safety in, an, in a world that was proving consistently that it was um, threatening. So uh, that molestation wasn't the only time that I had experienced that kind of exploitation, abuse, or, or violence. It's, that was consistent in my, uh, my life. Uh, I, and I don't mean with this, that particular individual. I just mean as a woman, as a young girl and young woman walking in the world, it was fairly chronic. So my nervous system was always waiting for that moment but that moment was the same moment at six years old. There was no difference. And so getting to the core of whatever whatever that particular narrative was, was critical. But what was more critical was that you cannot change what you cannot see or feel. And I had to go towards the emotion. Yeah. You have to associate rather than dissociate. Yes. And then, which is... Brutal. Something that's so, I mean, so many of us spend so much time. We're like, I'm compartmentalized, yes. but I get through every day. It's mm-hmm. okay. And mm-hmm. like, as long as that's my you know, like day-to-day reality, but at some point, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the compartment gate tears open or flips open. Yeah. And, um, but we don't want to feel that knowing, or we don't want to process or deal with it, knowing that feeling it will be sort of like the opening move. Right. Yeah. But in, in the spiritual communities that I'm a part of, There's this thing that they give you called detachment. It's the goal Mm. in many of these practices. And that's a gift to a dissociator. It's like big feeling come up and I detach. Great. Just let it go. (laughs) Let it go. And that's what I was taught uh, at a very early age within my spiritual practice. Big feeling, detach, big feeling, detach. And it wasn't until I started to have 
big emotional releases in yoga classes, which was freaky, that I started to understand the phenomenon of the mind-body connection, the way in which emotions release themselves from the cells, and how important it is to go towards the suppression and give voice to the shadow, no matter how ugly or mindless or unconscious it may seem. One of my mantras is that you cannot get to the bless you until you go through the fuck you. And I'm a, a big believer in that, like, great, I understand where I'm going, but I don't get to touch that until I allow for the animal energy, because that's all that it is, energy, to have space, no matter how unconscious. And anytime my brain starts to, to start saying like, yeah, but, or, you know, everything does kind of happen the way it's supposed to, stop it. Just let that animal out, because if I don't, the ego, it'll find another way to direct its energy. So I spent years in my practice feeling those feelings, connecting to the rage, not letting myself bypass from my own humanity. And as a result, the, the gift that that work brought and continues to bring is deep empathy for the human experience as it is, the complexities of the human experience, and recognizing that most people do not have tools and most people are dealing with trauma, whether it's developmental or shock or somewhere in that spectrum. And as a result of that trauma, have been protecting their energy body because they cannot deal with their big feelings. And they're reactive. The energy comes out and they do and say things, um, not because they're bad or even flawed. It's because the energy needs space mm. to move. So I just chose with guidance to find tools to help me manage those big feelings, to understand them without suppressing them, and then to what's called flipping the narrative, but in time. You know, I don't mm. get to go to those, you know, higher spiritual places and flip those narratives until at least I understand what the ego's narrative is all about. Yeah. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? 
for me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me, and it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight-up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Good Life Project is sponsored by NetSuite. So I remember when our businesses were just starting to really scale. It was amazing and also added complexity and stress. And the things that I used to do in hours were taking days, too many spreadsheets, too many systems, no single source of truth. If that sounds familiar, you should know these numbers. 37,000. 25 and 1. 37,000 businesses have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And 1. Because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. And right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash goodlife. That's netsuite.com slash goodlife to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash goodlife. I was thinking about Bessel van der Kolk's work in PTSD and how I, I recently heard a conversation with him where he said, you know, a lot of the treatment for PTSD for decades was talk therapy, various mm-hmm. forms of talk, 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 talk. And he's really come to a point where it's like he said, you, you cannot unwind um, trauma without having some sort of embodied part of the process, without moving the body, integrating it. Yeah. And, and his integration very often is yoga, some mm-hmm. form of physical movement. Um, it seems like a lot of the therapeutic world is coming to that same place yeah. also and saying, okay, so we can't just sit in chairs across from each other. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we can, but for a lot of times, like you said, there are, and I agree with you, there are so many people moving through life with some level of trauma, mm-hmm. largely dissociated because mm-hmm. it lets us get through the day. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, no. It's why there's drugs, alcohols, um, acting out sexually, shopping addiction, you know, um, internet addiction, anything to anesthetize ourselves from these big feelings because no one has taught us just to how to be present to those feelings and just let them be. And again, the idea, breathe and everything changes. You know, the grief becomes joy. The joy becomes heartbreak. The heartbreak becomes compassion. You know, it, it just these moves in these cycles, but we're not taught to tolerate the discomfort. Yet we, we crave the ease um, as a reward, but that's not life. Yeah. And I, and also to your point, I, I feel like we're not given the tools to know that we can feel fully mm-hmm. and then be okay. Yeah. You know, because we feel, and, and it's almost like, oh, you're extreme, like you're, you're manic or you're yeah. an, constantly angry and lashing out or you're depressed and we don't, yeah. 
it's like, you know, the, it's almost like the aspiration becomes that great twilight that's in the middle of everything, Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. rather than saying, okay, so let's, let's actually, let's talk about this. Let's move through it. Let's, let's explore tools and mm-hmm. practices mm-hmm. that let us feel the full sweep of the human condition and mm-hmm. still be okay. Yeah, It's like, no, let's actually just try and cut off the edges of the, of the human experience, yeah. not talk about the tools and see if we can be okay enough in that narrower mm-hmm. space. What I understand about that mind-body connection is like when I experienced my trauma as a way for me to deal with what was happening, again, I dissociated, but there's chemicals that release from your brain into your body. Your body goes into fight, flight, freeze, or fold. There's a contraction that happens. Your body contracts at a safety. It's a primal response. Now, in that moment of contraction, it's like a photograph has been taken. There's an, an energetic imprint of this moment. What this is doing is that the next time I'm in a a situation that reminds me of or feels in any way threatening, my body will alert me first. It'll contract again to let me know you're unsafe. You're not going to be taken by surprise this time. The thing is, my nervous system doesn't know what's on the other side of that contraction. That contraction feels like safety. It feels like control. There's no evidence that if that contraction, without that contraction, I'm getting molested or I'm getting bullied or something bad is happening within my unconscious. That's not true. Liberation is the thing that's beyond that contraction. But I don't have any cellular evidence that that's true. Yoga helps you to get past that contraction. Hmm. But there's space between the release and the contraction where we lose most practitioners because that's when it gets real. That moment when the body wants to release, if you don't understand that this is a gift, this is what your body's been begging for this for years, you'll fidget, you'll look around the room, you'll start to project onto the teacher, you'll fantasize about the sex you're going to have one day, maybe, whatever it is to not have to feel the sensation of what's on the other side of that contraction. As a teacher, these are the moments. It doesn't, sometimes it happens instantaneously, sometimes it's a process, but it's Please stay with this gap because there is that moment when the body finally does relinquish what it's been holding on to, and it is freedom. People grieve, they cry, they laugh, their body shakes, and they have finally moved from that contraction to that liberation where they're finally able to surrender. And what we know spiritually in the work that I do is it requires surrender to open ourselves to God. It's not from your head, it's from your heart. And if you're contracted, you will try to make sense of the etheric or of the incomprehensible or of the divine. But when you're available, you don't have to think it's just a knowing, it's just intuitive, it's an acceptance, it's a, it, it's a pathway in. Those are the moments of such deep grace, but you have to have a certain amount of courage because your body is saying, no, 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 what's over here is bad when it's actually the medicine. So that's what yoga has taught me is just to be really present to this discomfort. I don't blame people for not wanting to do this. Dissociation is easier than um, denial and dissociation is easier than than accountability and self-responsibility on the healing path. It really is The end result, unfortunately, is a disconnection from yourself, your soul, and pretty much the relationship of the entire planet. So it's like short-term discomfort for long-term freedom. And, but it does require confidence in yourself, 
guidance in others who have walked this path, who are saying like, you're cool, we got you. Um, mm. And faith that there is a journey that we're on that's even the dark stuff, even the painful stuff and are essential elements that lead to, to wholeness. You know, we have to figure this out the hard way. Yeah. And my hope is that people are willing to do the inner work necessary because what they get at the end is themselves. And you end up being grateful even for the, 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 the deeply uncomfortable stuff. You can't help but be grateful for every experience, every moment, every being who's crossed your path because all of it has been fodder for truth and liberation. You use the word God. Mm-hmm. Coming from the background you come from, what do you yeah. what do you mean by that? Well, God is something that I had to I, I had to learn. In a, I had to relearn what that meant. Mm. You know, my introduction to spirituality began. You know, again, it's like the mystery. It's like uh, I can look back now at fifty two years old and recognize that there were so many angels just conspiring, you know, just to keep pushing me forward onto this path, feeding me little tidbits of information that I really couldn't understand until later in life. Then I can step back and be like, oh my God, even that moment was grace. Like even that. And my earlier introductions to God really happened here in New York City. It's a, it's, it's a well-told story, you know, it's in my book. But I learned about God in an all-male gay sex club called Heaven. You know, and that was in the rectory of um, Limelight, where I just came from. Uh, it's now a gym, and it's right. very weird. It's very strange. Very, very Because I remember weird. that those days where were you in Heaven? P- Peter, uh, uh, Peter Gation, uh, yeah, Gation, and yeah. Michael Alig, and that yes. whole craziness. Yeah, he, I worked during that time. Yeah. Michael Alig Club Kid Two Thousand, I think it was called. It's when drugs like ketamine and and uh, ecstasy were just everywhere. I mean, ketamine was like a special K, a horse tranquilizer. It was, it was nuts. But I worked in a, in a private club. I worked in the disco, but at a time I worked in a private club called Heaven, which was all male gay sex club. And through a series of events, I met this man there who helped me to understand that God was truth and love and that God existed in all moments and all beings in all time and space. And that it was not a force that judged, that isolated segregated, separated in any capacity, that where there is truth and love, there is God, and there is truth and love everywhere. And he also helped me to understand that everyone is here in these bodies to understand and to learn what love is. And it's a very unique journey for each soul, and it's not going to be the same for each soul. And the rate in which people awaken to the truth of their own nature is between each being and the God that's within them, um, the highest aspect of themselves. And that seed was, it was the first time where I'm like, oh, I can get behind that. That's cool. You mean I can, I can, I can still be worthy of love, you know, in the back rooms of a sex club, you know, when there's glory holes and getting beaten by like whips, like that's all, that's all okay. Um, and apparently, you know, yes, that, it, that, that doesn't matter. It's not my business. So that was really my first introduction where I got a taste of perhaps maybe but I still rejected God for years, especially in the environment, uh, you know, getting so into yoga at that time. The schools of yoga were kind of, um, they weren't the way they are now in the mainstream yoga community where you can go to any school and take a variety of different kinds of classes. Right. You know, you, you it was Shivananda, you know, it was, it was Ashtanga, it was Iyengar, it was systematized. And within these systems, there was always a guru. And I had a real issue with that here in the West, with gurus, these elevated um, 
personalities, um, the dispellers of darkness, and that I was supposed to surrender my will to these people because they were the only way to get to God. And I remember thinking like, son of a bitch, I just spent like a fortune in therapy trying to call my power back. And now you're telling me I got to give my power away. Um, But there was another part of me was like, wouldn't mind someone else telling me how to live my life. You know, that doesn't seem like such a bad trade-off. But I had a really hard time reconciling my uh, understanding of experiencing the God within when I was only being supported to experience the God within someone else as elevated from me. And it wasn't until an event in India where I literally was awakened to understanding that God is not what you, I can't relate to the gods in the Bible. I can't relate to that patriarchal misogynist message. There are some words in the Bible that I do relate to. There are certain things that Jesus Christ said that I am completely all in because it's love, it's truth, it's inclusivity. That resonated in my soul. And that didn't really happen for me until around 1996 when I started to really connect to not looking outside of myself for God, not expecting God in the rainbows. It was always right in front of me, within me, within you, within all experience. And it was always love. It was always truth, even in its shadowed form, that there was always an invitation to move towards higher states of awareness that open us to a deeper spiritual connection. So it was just, it's, it's a reframing. I don't look at it in that traditional way, but I feel God in everything, Uh Every moment to me is is miraculous. You know, my body is miraculous. Your body, everything, this microphone, for God's sakes, it's all like so weird and wonderful, wondrous. And I just feel like uh, that's my connection to source. It's this mystical essence that does not discern and that exists and resides within each soul completely. And our work is to remember who we are and to waken up and to awaken ourselves to that essence. Yeah. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight-up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at moonpig.com. Moonpig.com. We skipped a whole <laughs> sort of like chunk of your path. Um, <laughs> but clearly, you've been teaching yoga for decades now. Yeah. You, there was this, a window of time from 17 to mid 20s ish, I guess, where you're mm-hmm. bopping around New York City doing various things and then began to practice intensively and then eventually teach. And you came into the practice and into the world of teaching at a time where I feel like the world of yoga, at least yoga in the United States, was majorly in transition. Oh, yeah. Um, and there were, other than the, the small number of male quote gurus who, you know, like you've sort of talked about, it's not like it is now. Mm-hmm. Um, and you became fairly quickly one of the, the sort of rising stars in this community. And so when you when you start to experience that yourself and you know that internally you have this knee-jerk reaction against saying like no to people you perceive as being like, well, you're telling me that I have to access this thing through you and submit to you and mm-hmm. transmission through you. When you start to enter the, that world as a teacher, as somebody who people are looking to you for guidance, how do you make the choices to navigate this new position in a way that feels like you're honoring um, yeah. sort of like wh- the way that you need to do it? Sure. It, it's very interesting because when I started teaching in 1994 and uh, after having practiced yoga for years, uh, never in a million years thinking I'd be a yoga teacher um, because I learned differently. I didn't adapt well in a teacher's training. I had a hard time understanding anatomy, putting things together like that. Very difficult for me. I also had a deep fear of speaking in front of people mm-hmm. because um, I struggle with vertigo and I get very um, dizzy. when To, to this day? Yeah, same. yeah. Oh. I still struggle with vertigo, but in different ways. Um, but at that time, I know now I, I'm very sensitive to energy. I didn't know that then. If more than eight people at a time looked directly at me, I would lose my train of thought. Things would get very blurry on the periphery. It would be hard for me to um, keep my train of thought. And so teaching 
yoga seemed an impossibility because people were actually going to be looking at me. And so I just took a teacher's training with the intention to advance my practice, not thinking I would ever become a teacher. So no one's more surprised than me, the direction that my career went. And I did get very successful very, very quickly. It's like I started teaching at the almost the exact same moment that yoga became more mainstream. Like people were coming in from the gyms and they wanted these dynamic classes. And the type of yoga I was into was, you know, it was a, a blend of Ashtanga and um, it was power yoga. Um, I had evolved from Mayengar, Ashtanga, you know, I played in power yoga. And so I started teaching power yoga and vinyasa flow. It wasn't called vinyasa flow at that right. time, nor was it called, you know, power yoga. It was just intense. And my classes got very, very popular very quickly. And it was, it was difficult for me because here I am a young, insecure teacher. You know, I want to make sure I please everybody. And you've got these really aggro A-type personalities coming in. And at that time, I would just give them what they want, not what they needed. And the class was just like an ego fest on everyone's end, and but they were popular. And this this was a lot in, in L.A. Also, this is in then, L.A. Right? Yeah, yeah, I wasn't teaching in New York. Right. This was out. I moved to L.A. Um, I think ninety two, and then something else happened simultaneous to all of that, which was the commercialization of yoga. Now that also wasn't a thing, you know. Yoga looked a certain way. It wasn't what it is now. And I started getting invited and I didn't look like your typical yogi, you know, um, you know, I wasn't wearing a turban. I looked marketable, relatable, blue eyes, blonde hair, white skin, able-bodied. There are things about me that could sell product that could sell yoga this was very difficult for me because at this point, I'm, I'd already been quite involved in uh, social justice issues and activism. And I was aware right away that by representing yoga, if you will, in this mainstream way, that I was also participating in the status quo of showing what good health looks like. When, of course, yoga is very diverse and looks like a lot of different things, but I was marketable. And I started getting covers of magazines. I was on the Today Show, you know, six months into my first, uh, you know, after I'd graduated my teacher's training, I didn't know anything. And yet I was being being asked to do all these things. And there was a lot of conflict internally because I felt like I'm, I'm a fraud. Like, I don't know what I'm doing as any young teacher doesn't know what they're doing. And yet I'm getting all these opportunities. And the only reason I'm getting these opportunities is because you can throw my ass in a pair of Lycra and sell uh, leggings. And this was, this was like a, a real, if you will, you know, come to Jesus moment for me because I knew that there was, that I was going to get opportunities that other people weren't going to get and had nothing to do with my skill or talent. But I wanted to earn this privilege and use the platforms that I was going to be given in a way that took the attention off of me and onto things that actually mattered. It was one of those moments where I had to really sit down and say, all right, I see the direction this is going in. I'm not sure I'm emotionally prepared for this. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm intimidated. I, I intimidated myself in this. Um, so what do I need to do? And for me, it was authenticity, is that I am not going to walk into these environments and pretend I'm going to share what I know 
I'm going to share my own journey. I am going to be direct about it. I'm going to take ownership for the privileges that I have. I'm not going to pretend that, uh, you know, somehow I've earned them, but I am going to use it and make sure that I constantly redirect the energy. I'm Because I'm from the East Coast and a blue collar environment, there is no way that people in my life would ever allow me to buy this, my own hype. It just wouldn't happen. So- like Jersey kid, Jersey family, Jersey friends. Totally. Like someone would <laughs> smack thing. me in the like, head. Right. Come from the New York area. It's like, mm, no. no, that won't fly. <laughs> no. That always lived within me. Yeah. So I just knew that uh, I wanted to get good and I have. And and what I mean by that and why I'm uh, you know, confident when I say that is that there were a lot of teachers during that time in my life and up to this day who invested an enormous amount of time and energy into helping me develop my skills as a teacher. To suggest that I'm anything less than good would be a complete disrespect to the amount of commitment that they had to the evolution of my skills, both spiritually, psychologically, as well as practically. And again, more angels that came into my life that said, okay, you're going to get attention. Let's help you become a good teacher. Let's help you to become effective. These were also people that, you know, wouldn't check in with me. You know, how you doing? How you feeling? What's going on? If I said something that they felt was inappropriate or, you know, uh, missed the mark a little bit, they let me know. Like, you know, want, want to check in with you. You need to rethink. This is not about you. This is, is, this is your dharma, but this is not about you. Um, you're in service to something bigger, they would remind me. And so I feel like over the years, uh, I've been, I'm grateful for the attention that I get, certainly grateful for the students who have empowered me to facilitate experiences for them that have helped them to grow and evolve on their path. But I do feel that my dharma is to me in service to God to do whatever I can to use my skills and talents to help others step into their own purpose, whatever that might be, through these embodied practices my role in this bigger picture is no greater than anyone else's, but I'm very clear what I'm supposed to do. Part of that, though, is not letting my ego get in the way of this, because I know that if I feed my ego around my teaching, if my sense of self becomes determined by my popularity or by my success, there's never enough of anything to fill that void. So I have to stay on top of it. I have to notice like, ooh, that, that, you know, I, I really, I got off on that moment. Like that felt really good. Like I don't avoid thinking that to myself and checking in later, like, okay, honey, just, you know, be aware that was seductive. I know that there's a, there's a big yoga in teaching yoga and I feel like I'm in on the joke. And so I'm, I'm, I haven't been interested in buying the hype. And I think because of that, um, I feel like the people that come to see me, trust me, they know I do the work myself. They know I put my money where my mouth is, that I'm, I'm committed to social change, and that if I do mess up, I take ownership and accountability for it and uh, try to model what that looks like and that the work doesn't ever end. Mm. So that's been my experience. I think a lot of it does have to do with, with the Jersey thing because the amount of attention that I got, trust me, it was it's seductive. I just, I just don't – my yoga is not to um, – 
is not to follow, allow myself to be seduced in that capacity. Yeah. Do you feel like that gets easier with age? Sort of like as you move deeper, it's sort of like, yes, because I've, it seems like that's, that's a natural process. Everything (laughs) gets, it's, I wish I could say that it's the spiritual practice that allows us to kind of ease into these experiences uh, differently. Perhaps it is that, but I definitely feel that it's also age, that there are certain things that I do not care about, am not attached to. Um, it, it just rolls off me in a completely different way than it did when I was younger. And I can't equate it to anything other than just a certain amount of maturity um, that comes with just living and breathing. Having a spiritual practice, of course, doesn't hurt. But for me, age has definitely allowed me to become more and more less uh, interested in people's opinions of me, whether it's good or bad. You know, I feel way more neutral about it. Mm-hmm. I know you have shared, um, I think it was towards the end of last year, a conversation with your mom talking about aging um, yeah. and where, uh, I'm sure I'll get it wrong, but hopefully I get the gist of it uh-huh. right, where there's a... Uh, you said something about aging gracefully and yeah. she responded and it's not about aging gracefully. It's about aging wildly. Yeah. 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 My mom's amazing that way. I mean, my mother's uh, such a character. And I remember when I was um, a kid, I must've been 10. My mother wanted me to sell these lottery tickets that she was supposed to sell. And I got in trouble because <laughs> you're not allowed to sell lottery tickets when you're not of age. So I went back to my mom. Uh, she was getting her hair cut. Um, and I said, ma, I just got in trouble. Um, she hands me those tickets back and she said, you go back to them and tell them that today I turned 30. And when you turn 30, you can do whatever the fuck you want. <laughs> and I'm like, Ma, I can't say that. <laughs> but I live with this in my heart. My mother was very clear. My mother is funny that, uh, you know, she just grabbed age, grabbed the experience um, every moment and lives it fully uh, uh, celebrates it all, talks about everything. And I'm much more conservative than my mother in so many different ways. And I look at her as a real role model of how to approach each day as you get older. Um, I mean, my mother's in a sexual renaissance right now, and she wouldn't care that I said that. It's like she is, ever since my dad died, it's like she's let herself awaken to her body in a very different and new way. It's a different body than she had at 25. It's a different renaissance. She's had many of them. She's loving it. This is a time when you're supposed to be, um, you're, and I put that in quotes, you know, yeah. you're supposed to be withdrawing from society. You're supposed to be like turning inward. My mother's more creative, more expressive than ever, but just seeing life through this more mature lens, um, but still just with as equal amount of curiosity. So yeah, she reminds me often to age wildly. Mm, I love that. Mm-hmm. You, We've kind of reflected um, a number of times on how from the, the earliest of times you had this sense for justice, for social justice, for right and wrong that seems like it was sort of like you, you knew it, you felt it when you were younger. It started to emerge um, when you started to go out on your own a lot more. And it feels like over the last 10, 15 years, it has really become a central focus in your life. Tell, yeah. tell me more about that. I'd have to say that um, service and uh, justice, really justice, is my yoga today. And I can't imagine that it's going to evolve into anything other than more, a, a deeper commitment to it. To me, it is yoga. Social justice is yoga. Racial justice is yoga. Environmental justice, um, indigenous rights, animal rights 
anything where people, beings, are being oppressed, being denied, being rejected, being alienated, being denied access to resources is the opposite of yoga. Yoga means to come together and make whole. Everything that divides is oppression. It's the opposite. And I, it was a natural evolution. My, I mean, I, all, I had always been involved in activism and uh, service, but it was very separate from my yoga. I, they didn't really meet um, until um, some years ago. Uh, once I made the connection, it was like, okay, step back. You know, as an activist, you're against something. As a conscious action activist, you're for something. And so my activist was very much about what I was against. But if I'm against something, again, I'm the problem. I'm still creating that separation. I'm still oppressing, even if it's an idea. So when I was an activist here in New York City, I loved it because what I was doing without knowing it, they were embodied experiences. I was yelling and screaming and raging is marching, chanting. I felt amazing when it was done because I was discharging the rage that I felt that hadn't been processed yet. Mm. It was just a, it was just a band aid though because it would take a day or two and the anxiety would come back and I would need another rally. When once I started understanding this connection and I, I stopped my activism because I knew that it wasn't um, I wasn't approaching it in a healthy way and I was going to burn out. As I got back into activism, first it was service. It was a slower process because I really had to, I became so aware of, like at first I was in service teaching young children who were severely sexually abused how to do yoga. But my first foray back in was, I came in with a, uh, a prescription, do this pose, breathe this way, and you're going to get fixed without recognizing that they have their own culture, their own medicine, their own ideology. And by me imposing, there was something about that that was like, oh, so I'm a savior? Is there a difference between helping and true service? What does that mean? What does it look like? What did I learn? What lives in my body? It just opened up this whole new just inquiry around what it meant to help. And does that continue to perpetuate oppression? especially as a white person, a privilege. What does that mean? And what does yoga tell me that means? Yoga tells me we're all one. That's what I learned. We are all one. And I believe that. But what I then started to learn, well, but we're not the same. You know, we're not the same. When I can walk down the street with my partner hand in hand, kiss him publicly, no one's going to say or do anything. They're probably even going to say, oh, isn't that sweet? That's not the case for a lot of people. I can get a visa anywhere in the world that I want to go. I can navigate the healthcare system. There are so many things that I can do that most people in this world can't. We're not the same. So just to issue these, this blanket statement of we are one misses the truth, the reality of this imbalance of power, which again is the opposite of yoga. Getting back into service forced me to have to look at where am I complicit in this imbalance of power? Where do I benefit from it? And where do I participate in it? And I do every single day. Why? Because it's in my body, because I inherited it, because it's ancestral, it's cultural, it's religious, it's in my school system. Um, I'm racist and sexist and homophobic and transphobic and have bias and, and I discriminate and I, uh, all of it. I can't not 
because of the environment in which I'm raised. And if everything is connected, and if I've inherited my curly hair and my blue eyes, I've also inherited the bigotry of my grandparents. And now will it come out overtly? Probably not. But in a moment of stress, when there's a primal in microaggressions, yeah. So the onus is on me as a practitioner to recognize that when it shows up, what it feels like in my body and how in the moment to make a different choice. And that to me was the deeper yoga that comes with wanting to be of service in the world is accountability. It's normalizing the conversation around the ways in which we participate this oppression, and we all do in different ways, and then begin the process, not just healing it within ourselves, but dismantling the systems that exist that continue to perpetuate it. Yoga taught me how to do that. Like for years, my activism was like, you got to change. And the people are listening. If you would have seen what I did right there, I pointed outward. But there's a saying is when you point one finger out, there's still three fingers pointing back at you. And that was a really important distinction is like, no, I think the deepest service that we can do is to take accountability for own humanity and to recognize the ways in which we utilize our power and privilege to disempower someone else, whether we're conscious of it or not. And what do we have to do to change it and to change the systems that support it? This was and continues to be the deepest yoga. And I learned along the way. I mean, I'm much more articulate about it now. I wasn't talking like this 15 years ago. Um, I was just trying to figure out the difference between charity and social justice. So you like everything. Like, you know, when I first learned my first downward dog, I didn't know where to put my fingers. Now it's second nature. Same thing when you're learning about social justice. It's like it's awkward and uncomfortable at first. And then eventually it becomes not just... uh, necessary, but essential, truly essential. If we're going to create any kind of peace in this world, there's a uh, a saying in the spiritual practice that our liberation is bound. And so therefore, if my goal in yoga is liberation, then I better do whatever I can to support the liberation of all souls. Otherwise I'm stuck and that no one can be free unless we're all free. And that includes myself. So my service has, uh, It shows up in everything that I do. I use the platforms that I have to support it. I look back now and it's like, that's why I was Mm. getting the covers of the magazines. That's why. Put the pieces together. Yeah. Yeah, Looking back. Mm -hmm. I couldn't have known it then. Yeah. But I was saying, they were saying like, you better prepare yourself and use this well. And, you know, this is the way I choose to use it is to help, especially the people in the yoga community. We're low hanging fruit. We're people who are opening to transformation So it's like, really, you want transformation? Try this and now go out and actually serve. But I mean, it's it's interesting too, because like, I kind of feel like there is a lot of lip service to opening to transformation Mm -hmm. because we want to, we want to wear the badge and we want to wear the t-shirt that says, Hey, I'm in the process of transformation. I'm in a group that's like devoted to this thing. And I go out to these things and I do this and I take care of myself. And yet what you're saying, at least what I'm hearing you're saying is that, the deep practice of unpeeling your own onion, of mm. cultivating inner awareness is is the most powerful and, and the fundamental form of activism and service and transformation. Like you can't go out into the world and make big social change. Well, you can, mm-hmm. you can take external action, but fundamentally, if you still walk down your block and you're loaded with bias yeah. because you have, and you're not even aware of that on a day-to-day basis mm-hmm. and what you can and can't do simply because not of choices that you've made, but because of how you landed on the planet, yeah. 
you know, there is this massive conflict which exists. And in a way, I think it's almost easy to say, yes, I'm for this, I'm out, Mm -hmm. I'm going to the rallies and fill all of your like available quote activism bandwidth with Mm -hmm. that stuff, you know, because then if you don't create the time to then say, oh, but what, you know, then you don't have the time to Mm -hmm. sit in solitude, you know, to do your own inner practice, Mm -hmm. which is, which is really hard. And I don't think it's an either or, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a yes and. Yes, it's a yes and. You know, but, you know, there are some practical things that just have to happen. You know, people need to be fed. Um, People need access to resources. You know, there's just things like, you know, I wouldn't say, well, I'm not going to I'm not going to be of service because I haven't done my inner work. It's like, no, get out there. It's it's, it's messy. It's messy. And I also look at I made a lot of mistakes along the way, big mistakes um, that I couldn't have matured from had those mistakes not happened exactly as they have had like those moments I look back now and be like oh my god like what was I thinking now I I I, but I'm all I'm grateful because that moment led to the awareness that I need to do deeper work and I couldn't have known that prior and yeah it's like it's it's a it's a parallel thing not a serial thing Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like they're one feeds back to the other and the other and the other. Like for years, I mean, with um, the the organization that I co-founded off the mat into the world, which is a leadership training organization that's done a lot of social justice work in the United States, in the world. And we also have an offshoot program called Global Save a Challenge. Now, that was really successful. It was a smart, just model, challenged yogis in the community to raise $20,000 if they could they would get to come with me to whatever country we were focusing on. Let's say it was India. Sex trafficking was the theme. I would and my organization would go and vet different organizations from building halfway houses uh, to paying lawyers for um, to work to change policy, whatever it was. We would commit to these organizations certain amount of money that they would get. In India, we raised uh, around a million dollars. And uh, if you can't raise the money, you don't get to go. But But the money would still go into this pot. And it was a good model. And we got to bring people to India and got to, you know, they worked with the organizations hands-on. They got to see, you know, the face of this trauma. This was a successful program that was doing super well. But it was after quite a few years where there were these moments where I would watch the participants say or do something where I'd be like, oh, whoa, you can't do that. You can't say that. And all of a sudden I'm looking around like, wait a second. I think we can't be here. These people, we don't have enough information about this culture. We don't understand their trauma. This screams of a little bit of colonization. Wait a second. Like it was this realization. So we stopped the program, even though it was so successful, because we try to put our money where our mouth is. It was like, we need to understand, like, what's missing? Education. So we redirected the program. And what we do now here in the United States is called Learning and Listening Tours. And we we bring people. The last one I just did was called Race in America, which was down in Alabama, which was to learn about um, slavery, um, systemic oppression, of course, uh, uh, the civil rights movement and progressive movements of the day. Now, I'm not teaching that stuff. What I'm doing, though, is teaching the yoga. So when stuff comes up, I'm helping people to embody that information. We hire leaders in the community who are coming in and teaching us. We even hired someone who was, he was an ex uh, neo-Nazi white supremacist. And now he goes around, it's called life after hate. And he helps other people who are neo-Nazi white supremacists 
get out of that world, heal. And um, he helps people like me understand my own white dominance and how it shows up in all aspects of our lives. That's the kind of work I want to do now is educate people to put them in environments where they're forced to have to look at their own isms and not in a judgmental way, just to say, there's your yoga now. It lives in the body. And then I help them to embody it. So, you know, and this has only been the last few years. So the learning process never ends. Um, But to me, uh, it's all about accountability, normalizing, taking ownership, not pretending that we should know better. owning what we know or don't know, and then doing whatever we can to continue to mature our awareness. I think that that's how real change happens. Mm. I can go beyond that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Feels like a good place for us to come full circle. So yeah. hanging on this container, Good Life Project. If I offer out the phrase to live a good life, what comes up for you? To love bigger than you ever imagined possible. Mm. Yeah, That was advice given to me when I was, uh, when I was 18 years old at Heaven and I all male gay sex club, love bigger than you ever imagined possible. Um, he also told me to ignore the story and see the soul and remember to love. You'll never regret it. And so Mm. that's how I try to live this life. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make this show possible. You can check them out in the links we have included in today's show notes. And while you're at it, if you've ever asked yourself, what should I do with my life? We have created a really cool online assessment that will help you discover the source code for the work that you're here to do. You can find it at sparkatype.com. That's S-P-A-R-K-E. T-Y-P-E.com or just click the link in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode. And then share, share the love. If there's something that you've heard in this episode that you would love to turn into a conversation, share it with people and have that conversation. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.